Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Guess who's Bazak? It's the John Nash of Take Rate, CJ Gustafson, here with another neck-breaking Run the Numbers pod. This week we have on the great and powerful Dave Kellogg of Kellblog fame. And guys, we go deep. I'm talking Mariana Trench deep on board meeting preparation and execution. Board meetings to many are this black box where decisions are made behind a curtain. So today we check in with the Wizard of Oz behind that curtain to see what actually goes on. Now, before we jump in, I want to implore you to give us five stars. I check it every day. Yes, I'm, I'm very vain. It's kind of like my North Star metric just for my ego. We work hard on this podcast, and it would mean the world if you just tap the old Cinco de Staro, please. Producer Nancy says please, too. Okay, quick mailbag before we get in. Andrew Gordon asked, Hey, CJ, do you have any tips or best practices around writing commentary for financial operational results? I find that by the end of the year, I am repetitive in what I write and how I describe results. This is an excellent question. It's also super relevant to what we're going to talk about with Dave today. So repetition isn't bad, in my opinion, if you've already built agreement with stakeholders, and I'm talking your CEO or your investors on what they want to hear and the type of information that they're looking for. Repetition is bad if you are just repeating stuff that no one asked for. Then they kind of just tune you out, and that's not what you want. So let's just assume that you have picked the right metrics to opine on each period. This is good because I would say it trains people on what to expect, and it allows them to quickly mentally map what they saw last period to this period. And I really think that there's something beautiful about repetition. Some people think it's annoying, but in the sense that you don't need to baseline what a definition means or what's included versus excluded. And it's also great for investors. You have to think that they're always trying to take your company and put it into a, a mental model or box to make it comparable to other you know, at-bats they've seen with other companies. So if you can cut through that mapping process and help give them the information they want. I'm not saying like on a silver platter or anything, but just make it easy for them to understand you, the look, shape, and feel of what you report. It makes it so much easier on them to go through each period and actually ask you questions that can help you with your business. I go so far to not only repeat metrics, once again, assuming these are the right ones, but also the format. And I'm talking the exact same slide look and feel, colors, bullet points, charts, if you use a bar chart for ARR one period, don't turn around and do like mix of ARR in a pie chart the next. Plus pie charts suck. Board meetings, they're not like this arts and crafts project. So save your Jackson Pollock painting for an internal meeting. That It's not time to, to, to break out the latest and greatest work of art at a board meeting and try to explain it. No one really cares about that. You don't get any don't get any style points on your skateboard here. So you want to get in and get out and get some input with the least amount of confusion that's possible. And you'll hear Dave in this episode talk about repetition, the sem sense of templatizing things. I, I love how he talks about templates here. People like structure because it allows them to compare changes faster. In fact, if you don't believe me, take a 10K from a major tech company, print out GitLab's last three 10Qs or maybe a 10K, print it out for the last three quarters. That's for all of you who still own a printer, by the way. I still own a printer. And speaking of that, you know who should not sponsor this podcast? Brother Printers. You guys suck. It was like putting a man on the moon trying to just set this stupid thing up. Plug and play, my ass. But like I was saying, there's a deliberate repetition in both the order that CFOs, at least, talk about metrics and even the adjectives they use to describe them. In fact, they speak in what I would say like the same word packets from period to period. So earnings calls, at least the CFO section, are literally formulaic. I've scripted a couple before for mock earnings. So on to the episode. Please give us five stars and share this podcast with your favorite cousin. Welcome back to another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. This is CJ Gustafson here with the great Dave Kellogg. Thanks for joining me, Dave. Hey, CJ. Thanks for having me. So I'm a CFO preparing for his, uh, I think this is going to be my fifth board meeting as a CFO. And you've been on all sides of the boardroom table, really, as an operator, specifically as a CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, and as a CEO, and also as an investor, advisor, and board member, kind of from the other angle. And so 
Today, I wanted to dig into board meetings, specifically across kind of three vectors here. So how you prepare for a board meeting and the materials you should bring together, the different board dynamics and managing the personalities and motivations in the room, and then actually running the meeting. So to kick it off here, and this is a bit tactical, but how much of a board presentation should be repeated or, or templated from quarter to quarter? So I'd say somewhere between a third and a half. And I think the underlying question here is, do you want the board to have a chance to kind of, quote unquote, inspect the troops at the board meetings? Because if you don't, it, it will change my answer. Now, as a board member, I very much want that opportunity, particularly because if you're going to want my opinion three months from now or six months from now on a reorg, it's nice if I've sat, you know, I've sat in the room with the person, asked them questions, had them deliver presentations. So it gives the board members a chance to get to know the executive staff, which improves their ability to help the CEO when it comes to making decisions about organizations, hiring, firing, promoting, et cetera. Do you think as an operator, to a certain extent, you're almost training your board on what to expect or, or different metrics or kind of views of the business? So, so I think, I mean, anything you do repeatedly can be argued as training, but um, the, the way I think of it is you're building agreement with your board about what they want, right? Because if, if you put out an agenda and it includes, you know, a third of the meeting is operational review using a fairly standard template in terms of structure uh, and reviewing fairly standard metrics, if you do that consistently over time and somebody goes, I hate our board meetings, it's like, well, <laughs> you, you had plenty of chances to tell me uh, that beforehand. So, so I would say every meeting you do that in the same structure, you're kind of confirming the structure. And as CEO, once in a while, you should ask, hey, we, we do follow a regular structure. Do you like it? I would view it when you look up from the CEO perspective at the board as kind of building agreement. And, and then I, the people I think you're training are your executives because executives for a bunch of different reasons aren't always good at presenting to boards. And I think it's a very important skill for them. One of the things that sometimes I, I struggle with or go back and forth on is I don't want to appear like lazy, like I'm just refreshing a slide, but I guess that's actually a good thing if I'm not creating it from scratch. You could have a template where, you know, for example, I, I think a typical sales template would be first slide with summary metrics. And then um, what else? Would I, I might put key wins in, key losses, along with reasons, right? Those are the kind of things you'd find in the template. It's not lazy to build the template. In fact, I think it's actually people are lazy when they don't build templates, when they just kind of cherry pick slides yeah. du jour. I grabbed this from the ops review. I grabbed this from an executive meeting and I kind of <laughs> threw them into a deck. And the deck is different every time. I'd argue that's lazy, that that building a template and actually going to the board with the template unfilled in and saying, is this what you want to see? I've got mm -hmm. key wins, key losses, loss reasons, blockers, summary metrics, drill down metrics. This is what I want to show you. Is this what you want? Personally, I, I would welcome that and view it as somebody going above and beyond. So with that understanding, do you have like a group of like three to five slides that you recommend people always start with? So I think th there's two different things. One is how the board meeting should start. And then the other is the structure of a VP's presentation. I'll, I'll do the first one first. Yeah. We can come back to the other one. So, so I think, and I did a blog post on this, not surprisingly called the first three slides of a board meeting. I think that was the title. <laughs> I think the first slide should always be a CEO summary, which is the good and the not so good or the good and the bad. But, but you just say as CEO, look, overview, here's what's going well at the company right now. Here's what's not. And if you've done that honestly, it will tee up the VP's sessions because you might say customer success is not going well, churn rates are too high. And, and if you know that's covered, as it should be, right? If it's a top CEO concern, please tell me when we get to the customer success VP section that they talk about the problems, right? And if for some reason, because you don't always have time to have every VP present at every meeting, maybe they don't have a section. You can just cover it in real time. And just say, look, we've got some problems in professional services. Margins were instead of positive five, they were negative five. We're not going to cover that in a session. But Joe, 30 seconds, tell us what went wrong. And Joe talks about it and you're done, right? So, so I use that slide as a chance to either tee up the subsequent, hey, Mary, the VP of success, will cover that in her section later. Or if I know it's not there, I say, hey, we're going to knock this one off right now. So the good and the bad. By the way, the other VP should not emulate this. The only person, in my opinion, who has the, the right to do the company-level overview of what's going good and bad is the CEO. Then followed by that, the key operating metrics presented in the, since I get to talk on this podcast about this, trailing yeah. nine-quarter format, <laughs> right? So I can see seasonality. I can see two years of comparisons. I can also see plan comparisons and year-over-year -year comparisons. 
So it's probably about 12, 13 columns in that if you add it all up. But I get to look in one slide with full context how we're doing op an operating metrics, and then the next slide should be PL and cash metrics. And I call any metric a PL metric if it's derived from a PL figure, like CAC ratio. You might call it an operating metric. I need sales and marketing expense to calculate it. So I tend to throw it on the PL related metrics, semantics, who cares? But either way, the CAC ratio better be on one of those two slides. Man, there's a lot to drill into here. Um, first off, a slide that I've used in the past, and I'm curious if you think it's good or not, I usually create it for the CEO and it's four quadrants. So it's highlights, lowlights, opportunities, and threats. And that I feel like sometimes will put enough on a page, a couple bullet points under each, especially if it's a CEO who you know isn't obsessed with going through a whole slide loop. They just want something up so they can speak and kind of refer to it. Is that how you've approached things in the past too? Look, I, I know is the short answer. I think it's spiritually close to the good and the bad, mm. <laughs> right? Because all opportunities are potentially good things and all threats are potentially bad things. If you need somebody who, who needs to be drawn out to think more broadly, that format might help. I personally view that as a somewhat of a perversion of a SWOT analysis. And I guess I'm going to be fairly fundamentalist here, but, but SWOT analysis is supposed to be strength, weakness, opportunity, threats. The thing that people forget from the textbook definition of SWOT is that strength, weakness are internal, opportunities, threats are external. So if you're going to do a SWOT analysis, do a SWOT analysis. All the strengths and all the weaknesses should be internal. We're good at this. We're bad at that. All the yeah. opportunities should be external. All the threats should be external. I think I have a bastardized SWOT analysis. I'm, I'm doing my own analysis <laughs> do. of Most my own do. slide yeah, on the call. <laughs> Dave, something that hit me is you said that the, the CEO has the ability to do kind of a reflection of what's going good, what's not going good. Why shouldn't VPs do that? Is it undermining the CEO or is it just like a perspective thing? You don't have the perspective to say it. Yeah, I mean, look, the VP of sales could stay up and say, here's what's going well in sales and here's what's going badly. But I think one, it's a form of, delay slash avoidance. Like, I just want to jump in and hear the key metrics. How did we do? We pay you to sell software. How much software did you sell? And who did you sell it to? How much was SMB? How much was enterprise, right? What was the average sales cycle? We're trying to reduce that. Did we, right? By the time the VP of sales is up, if it's kind of high level, I personally want the CEO to have teed it up. Because just say sales is missing their numbers massively, I don't view that as a sales issue. That's a company issue, right? And, and I don't <laughs> yeah. want the CEO go, well, you know, from where I sit, everything's going well. But oh boy, what a mess it is in sales. Uh, you know, th that's that's not okay. So I, I think if it's if it's bad enough to make the company overall, the CEO should say it's a company-level problem. We're, we've been 75% of plan for the past three quarters. That is a company-level, in my opinion, crisis. And I'm going to talk about it in my section and the VP of sales is going to talk about it in their section, right? We're really going to focus on this because it's a huge issue. Conversely, if it doesn't qualify for the CEO's level, I don't particularly care about it, right? Oh, hiring is going pretty well in sales and the SEs are happy and somebody made a new demo yeah. and people are grumpy about the, I don't know, marketing's latest program. It just tends to be noise. The thing I've observed with a lot of executives is they don't want to cut to the chase. They don't want to talk about what the board cares about. So I don't want to give them a whole slide in the template of kind of waxing poetic before we jump into the numbers. I, I want the first slide of a VP section to be key metrics. Here are the eight to 10 metrics we've agreed to, to judge sales by, right? They might be normal things like percent of plan. They might be unusual things like SMB percent of plan because maybe we're trying to focus more on SMB. So that would make the top seven. And by the way, what makes the top seven? I mean, first, I think we should agree on them. Mm -hmm. But if your top seven looks really different from my top seven, that itself is a problem. Like, like, hey, we have a big upmarket push. Why don't we have enterprise percent of plan as a key metric? When you do wax poetic, you wax poetic how important enterprise is and how well enterprise is going, but we're not showing many performance numbers for enterprise. Right. So uh, that's all. I, I just I want to cut to the chase, talk about numbers. Right. Do you think in some ways a CEO's job is to almost like throw the alley-oop or do the setup for their functional leaders to present? And this is one that I, that I don't always know the balance for, but the CEO's doing an overview of the P&L to set up the CFO later to go into more detail. 
Yeah, look, I like talking in the CEO section about key P&L metrics, for example. Uh, again, how you define P&L metrics may mm -hmm. vary, but I would put cash as a P&L metric, even though technically it's not on a, the income statement in business school. But in Dave's parlance, that's a P&L metric. It's absolutely a key metric for any startup. It's oxygen, right? It, cash is to startup as oxygen level on scuba divers. Oxygen tank <laughs> is to scuba diver, yeah. right? Run out and you die. So I want the CEO to talk about that. Cash is not, you know, a detail to be left to the CFO's update at the end of the meeting. I think in, in a startup, it should be there. And that's slide three, which is here's how we're doing on the key P&L metrics. And let's just say if subscription COGS is running high, so therefore subscription gross margins low, the CEO can either say, here's why, or, or they can say person X is going to talk about it in their update later. And for that particular one, it might be the VP of engineering because it may be software driven, right? Uh, or it might be the VP of ops, or it, I'm not sure who's going to talk about why subscription <laughs> cogs is broken, but but somebody's going to have to talk about it. So I view it as a tee up. It's not quite the alley-oop, right? I, I'm not giving it to you and all you have to do is dunk it. But I am saying, look, here's what's going on at the company level. Some of this stuff we can handle right now. So I leave about 15 to 20 minutes for that slide, by the way. That good and the bad slide is when I do it or when I did it. It, it, it's 20 minutes. It, it's, a, it's a long discussion. This is the highest level stuff affecting the company. If you have a question, ask it now. And in some cases, we'll talk about it more later. And it often, my, my, my favorite answer is I always answer the question, right? I have a blog post called The Key to Dealing with Senior Executives to Answer the Question. A friend of mine works at a really big company, and they have a different code for the same contact. It's ATFQ. I'll let you guess what the F stands for. But, but it's answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> ATFQ. So ATFQ, right? If somebody asks you a question in a board meeting, you should answer it and just say, look, the short answer to your question is there was a defect in the software that caused it to be too compute intensive and we wasted a lot of CPU cycles that smashed subscription cogs. And uh, the long answer is person Y is going to talk about it in the engineering update and what we're doing to fix it. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I love, Dave, how you called out how long you actually stick on that slide. That's meaningful to me because Sometimes you wonder when you're in a meeting and you're presenting it, and this is part of the art of presenting, like when should I move on to the next slide versus is this something worth sitting on? And it's less about what's on the slide and more about the discussion around it. Yeah, I mean, the beauty of that slide is if every bullet up there is definitionally worthy of discussion, right? It's the CEO saying all in on one slide with maybe eight to 10 bullets in each column, here's what's up at the company. So, so they're all worthy of discussion. And to me, it's, it's almost a thing of respect. Out of respect for the board members, I'm not going to make you wait to talk about the most important issues in the company. If I know there's eight slides analyzing it in the VP of marketing deck later, I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> but I'll still answer your question and say, look, the short answer is this. And we've got eight slides on that coming in the deck. But, but this is the time we ask questions. In some ways, board members want to ask questions. They don't want to get presented to. So the wrong way to deliver that slide, I'm glad you noticed me talking about it because I've never actually written about that or talked about it before. Like, how long do you spend on the slide? And the answer is a long time. This is the board. They haven't met in a quarter. These are the top issues at the company. If you have a question, ask it and we'll talk about it. And if I know it's answered later, I'll tell you. Something I work on with my CEO is trying to map out going into a year, which quarters we should bring in, which department leaders to do a deeper dive on. Do you have a typical calendar cadence or do you kind of make it up throughout the year depending on what's going well or not going well and relevant? So I'm going to answer one question you didn't ask, but my template for a VP session, which we never came back to, is start with your summary metrics, then talk about your OKRs. And I don't care if you got 78% performance, but I want to know what you're focused on. Broadly speaking, what are the CRO's top five priorities? And if they're not your OKRs, I need to understand that. <laughs> right? Either they are your, your top priorities or there's something wrong. And I don't want an OKR status report. More as I just want you to talk about your OKRs. What were they last quarter? By the way, verbatim, show me what you put up last quarter. Don't cherry pick or fudge. Ideally, just take the same slide, paste it, and put callouts on it. That's what I like to do. So you can see like unphoto redacted or whatever. <laughs> so, so tell me what the OKRs were. Tell me how we did. Tell me about your org chart. I want to know who you're planning to hire, what your structure is. I sit on 10 of the boards, right? But most VCs sit on 10 boards. I don't remember your org chart. So show it to me. Where are their openings? Where are you hiring? Why are we investing in this area, et cetera? So I see OKRs, org chart, and metrics, basically. Those are the things. We can also have summary versus drill down, particularly for an area like marketing. You need a lot of drill down. But that's what the VP should present. 
zooming back up to you here, on the overall structure of a board meeting, I always think it's three things. One, general session, which is operational updates. So, so we start out with those first three slides, have a brief CEO update, and then as many VPs as we want to cover that session, and, and that will vary. Some can be there, some can't. To your point, somebody just presented, you know, I don't know, I don't mean to be mean, and now you're going to get a lot of hate mail, but the CHRO did a deep dive at the last meeting. Things are going fundamentally fine. I don't need another deep dive for the sake of, you know, fairness of time. The purpose of this is not about fairness of time. It's about maximizing shareholder value. So if it's a support function, which includes marketing, and if it's going well, maybe it doesn't need an update every meeting, right? And that's one you call it. You might say, oh, they weren't here last meeting, so we'll put them on, or they haven't been on in two, so we definitely need to put them on, or they were just on, and we did a deep dive, so we don't, right? But basically, the meeting itself is a general session, which is operational updates, and that kind of fluidly, you know, there's always going to be a sales one. There's almost always going to be a marketing one. (laughs) There's almost always going to be a product one usually a finance one, but it's less about the finance department and more about the finances of the company, right? Which is a distinction, right? The finance update, I don't think it should be focused on accountant satisfaction, right? You know, <laughs> but, but you know, maybe the sales one should be focused on sales turnover, right? That would be a different. So there's the general session, inspect the troops. Then the second part is strategic topics and you need to leave time for these. These are like 15 to 30 minute discussions per topic. And the third is closed session. And your question in my parlance was, should the second area, strategic topics, be templated in any way? Like in every Q1, we want to hear from marketing because they're building the pipeline for the year. And every Q4, we want to do a budget update. Exactly. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, that was the question. And the answer is I wouldn't waste energy on it because the reality is, my, my answer is reality is who cares? I want to talk about what's important right now. I don't care if you anticipated that in November or not. And I certainly don't want to talk about something you thought was important in November and April if that isn't important anymore. That would be really bad. So, so I tend not to template that. I just say, hey, what do we want up for strategic topics? I think X, Y, and Z, dear board members, what do you think? You give them a chance to input. And then you say, hey, we chose these three strategic topics, three 30-minute discussions. So an hour and a half of the meeting, good chunk of it, are, are going to be on these things. And I'm going to tee them up as discussions, which I know we'll talk about later. I got to drill into one part of what you mentioned. You said the general session, the strategic topics, and then the closed session, or what I've heard called the closed door session. Who's a part of that? And what the hell goes on there? In closed session, yeah. My joke at MarkLogic and at Host Analytics was always there's the super closed session afterwards, which is the e-staff meeting with the CEO to debrief on the board meeting. Um, and sometimes is that there's a actually bar or second- a restaurant or is, or is that <laughs> yeah, still yeah, in the Yeah, it could room? often be at a bar or a restaurant, yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's also the executive session sometimes where you kick the CEO out of the closed session. But let's go through it. So the three things are you know, general session, strategic topics, closed session. Question is, what goes on in closed session? The answer is... Topics that you don't want to talk about with the e-staff in the room. But by the way, strategic topics don't necessarily include the whole e-staff either. I think the general session includes the whole e-staff definitionally. Some people don't bring them and that bothers me. I want them there. Strategic topics really, you know, don't put people in the room who are going to not contribute. So so if you have something to say on a topic, you should be in the room. And if you don't, you shouldn't. So you might bring the VP of RevOps into a strategic topic session if it's sales planning. Right, you don't have to be on the e staff to go to that. You could have the CRO and the head of RevOps. You can bring in extra people, or you can ask people to leave. If it's about marketing and positioning, you can ask the the uh, CHRO to step out because we don't need them. Right. So strategic topics, the attendance should be kind of content driven, and then closed session, it's the board. Right. So to me, your ticket into closed session is you're a board member. Does that include the CEO, Dave? Yeah, the CEO is a board member, um, so so they get to stay. The board observers, in my opinion, don't. People go both ways on this, but um, if you're not on the board, you shouldn't be in closed session. Now, there's always one exception to that, which is usually the corporate lawyer, right? Because he's there to take the minutes. And and if you're smart, you leverage their expertise as well. But the only people, sometimes the CFO is in for closed session. I don't really like that. I don't think it should be a default. If there are topics I know I need the CFO for in closed session, I tend to do them first. Right. So we'll finish strategic topics where the CFO is almost always there. We go into closed session with the CFO in the room because we need to do things that require the CFO. I don't know, 409A update. Right. right. How's the 409A right. evaluation going? Here's the evaluation. What do we think? Okay, great. You could argue stock option approvals, they need to be there. Less clear to me, but but somebody needs to present those. The CFO is to me is not a standing full session attendee of the closed session. What does closed mean? It means board only. Now, in addition, I think this is thanks to Sarbox, 
for public companies and for larger private companies, you'll and even for some smaller private companies, you'll have an executive session where you ask the CEO to leave. And then it really is just the board members. And again, I don't like board observers in these sessions. I'm fine with board observers, but they're not board members. So my offensive joke is board observers are like Victorian children. They should be seen and not heard. <laughs> that's, a, that's a sound clip, Producer Nancy. Victorian be, children. Yeah. And by the way, they shouldn't even really sit at the table because they don't have a seat at the table, right? If, if there's a table with seats around it and there's chairs around the outside of the room, a board observer should not take a seat at the table, right? So the reason is, as you well know, board seats are very hotly negotiated. And if your firm has one board seat, you have one board seat. And the CEO might let you bring two or I've even seen three people to the meeting. Okay, but just don't try to turn that into three board seats. We want to hear from one of them. You know, one board seat means one person gets to talk from your firm and not one at a time. You know, <laughs> sorry. So what, what is then the point of a board observer? Is it just someone else to hear it? Like as a second set of ears from there? I, I think it's part of their own development to watch board meetings. I mean, oh, look, if I was, okay. a, you know, I get to learn how board meetings go. It can be board member in training. Like if the VC is retiring or has too many boards, I'm going to bring this other person to the board meeting, maybe more junior in the firm for three to four board meetings and then transition. So there'll be a board member. That's a valid need. Sometimes people negotiate the right because like, they don't have a board seat and they want to see what's happening in the boardrooms, right? I, I think board observers are different when you have a board seat and when you don't, because sometimes it's your only view on the board. And look, a smart board observer who's company doesn't also have a board seat can speak, but they better be careful about when they do. Right. Like I've seen them and I add a lot of value because they know their place. They, Hey, I'm not on the board, but I just wanted to share this. One of our other portfolio companies had a very similar issue with this, you know, proposed contractor that we're going to use for the user conference. And I think you should talk to so-and-so, right. That's value add. But, but the thing that's not good is when you already have a board seat and the observer is just as vocal as the board member, that doesn't work for me at all because you're basically trying to steal a board seat. Now, the executive session is when it really is only the board members. And they're going to say, how's it going with the CEO? First, what did you think of the meeting? Now that no one's here, how did you think the meeting went? What do you think the top issues are? The CEO may come up. Sometimes in that same transition flow, by the way, the CEO may start the closed session the CEO may stay for the start. Well, it doesn't really matter, but the CEO may talk about the team and that'll either be in closed session or depending on whether board observers are allowed in closed session, an executive session, but in the smallest group possible, the CEO may talk about the team. That makes a lot of sense. I picture the closed door session as uh, where, where most of the scenes from you know the movies go down. Yeah, and it's usually not, right? In, in a healthy functioning board, the executive session is pretty short and it's not a big deal. It's, hey, what did you think of it? Oh, it's a pretty good board meeting. What can we do better? Yeah, we should tell the CEO to do this or... God, I hated that update from the VP. I can't believe they're still here. They've been on the, you know, the 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 improvement plan for two quarters. You know, it, it'll be a little bit of venting, but it, it's they're rarely smoky rooms where all the action happens. And that that's an excellent segue because I wanted to ask you concerning board dynamics. What's the inside baseball of having a meeting before the meeting? As a CEO, would you try to meet individually with board members who are going to be there to brief them on a topic ahead of time? Yeah, so two questions in there. Me, personally, I didn't do a lot of that. By the way, the, the, the meta answer to your question is ask your board. So if you want to know what your board wants in terms of pre-meeting structure, ask them. And you, you could be shocked at the range of answers you hear. You know, if somebody asked me, I would say, I want you to get me the deck 48 hours in advance so I have time to review it. If I have an urgent question, I'll call you. Or if there's some issue that's not on the deck for whatever reason, right? Then call me and tell me. So I'm not surprised. That's a great call out, Dave. I just want to mention for people listening, like you should yeah. have the board deck sent to people at least 48 hours ahead of time so they can absorb it. Some people will say like five days and I think that's too far. <laughs> I think 24 is getting short and, you know, six to 12 is silly short. I think everyone universally would say get the board meeting out 48 hours in advance or, or, mm -hmm. or maybe a little more. The question is how much conversation is there before it? And I think it depends a lot on what the content is. But but I'll tell you, I asked one of my board members at one of the companies I ran, I said, what CEO across all the companies you've ever worked with did the best job at working with the board? 
And I got a 20-minute answer. And, and it was something like this. Oh, you're not going to believe this person. They were amazing. They would get the board deck done five days in advance. They would call each board member and walk through the entire deck one-on-one with them. Every slide, every question, finish it. So by the time we got to the board meeting, no one was surprised. There was almost nothing to talk about um, because everyone had been so th- – that guy was amazing. Now, personally, that's my nightmare, right? Like, like I actually believe meetings have a purpose. Like, we get together to discuss stuff. So, so not everything should be decided in advance. Not everything should be talked about in advance. If there's a controversial issue, it helps the CEO to pre-read the room. So, and I would even say it. I, I would walk in and say, look, you know, we're talking about a reorg or a big strategy change. I know it's pretty controversial. I've talked to all seven of you about this. I know four of you feel this way, three of you feel that way. So this is gonna be a tough conversation. I know the pro people like this, the con people hate that. Let's go talk about it. And if I know someone has a strong composition and they're not raising it, I'll call them out. Hey, Greg, you know, when we talked, <laughs> you mentioned this. Is that no longer a concern or are you mm-hmm. still worried about that, right? Because one thing you have to worry about always as a leader is what is called a pocket veto, where, where somebody isn't going to speak in the meeting, but they're going to vote no at the end or worse yet, after the meeting, if they're in a position of power, say, I know we just decided that in the meeting, but we can't do it. And I'm going to invoke my special power. And that's called pocket veto. I never heard veto. that term, a pocket yeah. veto. And you've got to make sure there's no pocket vetoes on the board, right? It, technically, nobody has one. Maybe the founder does, right? Because they could just say, I'm not doing it. But but you want to use the pre-brief both to hold a better conversation, but to kind of tee up a better discussion and also force participation and say, I know you like this idea, Sally. Tell us why. You yeah. told me two days ago why you liked it. Tell us why now. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Yeah. And I guess what I was driving at is, am I a bad CEO or bad CFO if I'm surprising somebody in the board meeting? I think if it's a big surprise, yes. If it's a little surprise, no, right? Because look, the rule is never surprise your manager and never surprise your boss. The two answers are one, the board is technically speaking, not your manager. We can talk about that relationship if you want. But secondarily, there shouldn't be big surprises. Oh, the CRO is leaving. Did, didn't mention it. Or, you know, or, oh, you know, we're, we have an offer on the table that I didn't tell anybody about. That somebody's offering to buy us. And, and by the way, it should be symmetric. It's very uncomfortable to me when three board members know and two don't because you're either on the board or you're not. And sometimes they'll tell the investors, but not the independents. Sometimes they'll tell the, the independents, but not the investors. Sometimes they'll just talk to who they're comfortable with. But that, that is bad. When some board members know and others don't, that's not a good situation in my mind. That's an amazing call out that it has to be symmetric. You can't just go and alert or give a he- heads up to the board member that you're individually most comfortable talking to. Yeah, that creates problems. So so I think in general, look, you're allowed to surprise the board. It better be on little things. You can overdo it on the prep. I think you're wasting your time. My answer is I'd rather have that guy running the company than spending 30 hours running the board deck seven times for each director, right? Please run the company. That's your actual job. Dave, we talked about the role of uh, the Victorian children, the board observers. Can you can you break down the role of an independent board member? Sure. You know, and I'm not an expert in the law on this, but, but I, I believe notionally the independent directors represent the common stock. That, that the preferred members each represent their class of preferred, right? So if I led the A round or and I own shares in the A round, I represent my class of shares. And, and there are cases, let's be clear, when the, the preferred's interests and the commons' interests are not aligned. Just say there's a multiple liquidation preference on the Series E and there's an offer on the table where they get a 2x return no matter what and the common gets wiped out right? Then the Series E preferred has a very different interest (laughs) than the common, right? In in that exit scenario. Now, notionally, and there's an excellent paper on this called Something About Director Conflicts of Interest in Silicon Valley Startups. It's a paper by Stanford, but it's hard because the VC is definitionally conflicted because they are supposed to have a fiduciary duty to all of the shareholders, yet they represent their class. So in that scenario, the VC can't notionally cop out and say, hey, it's great for the Series E, let's sell a thing and I'll get my 2X to hell with the common. That would be a dereliction of one of their two hats. Sometimes they might do it anyway, because <laughs> perhaps they haven't read this paper or they forgot. The short answer is notionally in that worldview, the independents are there to protect the common. 
So, so the independent it. better speak up and say the common stock gets zero, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. If it's somebody's job to say that, and normally the CEO will, because well, they may have preference, but normally they don't have preference. So, so the common shareholder directors, i.e., the independent directors, should do that. So that's kind of the legalistic view on it. The, the more kind of conventional view is just that they're they're not an investor; they're an operator, and they're a mentor slash coach to the CEO, and they're seen as kind of adding value in that way. Now, now I will tell you one thing. One of the scariest things I ever heard from one of my independent directors at one of my companies was, oh, I basically work for the VCs, which Ooh. is not what you want to hear, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like, no, no, I want you to be independent. I want you to speak your mind, even if it makes the VCs uncomfortable. And you have to be very careful of this issue because – you know, just say you're backed by Sequoia and Sequoia recommends the independent director. And by the way, Sequoia will give you one heck of an independent director, right? Their recommendation is going to be a super qualified person. So, sorry, Dave, how are, yeah. how are they independent though? So I've ran into this. How are they independent yeah. if they're recommended by your VC? Isn't there like a wink, wink then that they're putting someone who's independent, but not independent? on the board? Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you interrupted me. It happens all the time. <laughs> well, well, cause I'm saying, yeah, it happens all the time. They're, they're often, look, look, my own hit rate when I'm recommended by the VCs is, you know, probably 80%. And when the founder finds me off my blog, it's probably 10%, right? It's hard when, when it's just the founder going, Hey, I know this cool guy and, and, and we could have him <laughs> on their board. Like those are hard to win. And your, your batting average is much, much higher when you're brought in by the investors. And I think as a CEO founder, the, the thing Look, technically they are an independent. Why? Because they're sitting in an independent seat and you chose to let them do that. And yes, they were – what? you want? If Sequoia recommends a superstar independent to you, do you want to first say no to Sequoia and make Sequoia angry? Say no to a person who's probably a caliber above anything you could find in the market, right? And th right. this works best with Sequoia. If you're a lesser VC, you may not be getting a superstar, but I'll, I'll make it hard. The hard case, which, by the way, Mark Logic was backed by Sequoia. So, so I had – superstar independence coming in, right, recommended by the firm. And, and there's a pro-con evaluation, which is, wow, this guy is aligned to Sequoia in some way, but to what extent do I think they'll speak their own mind, right? So some of it's a judgment of the individual, right? See, so the individual is super successful. And, and like, I don't care what Sequoia says, I'm friends with them, right? That, that's a different tone than one guy who literally said to me, quote, I work for the investors, right? So, so you should talk to the independents about how independent they are, Right. And then the last thing I say is you have to be aware of what I call the, the electromagnetic field, which is we'll come back to it in a minute. I'll let you ask a question first. We, we got to come back to the magnetic field. No, I just wanted to comment. It seems like there's a spectrum of what, what we'll call, quote unquote, independence. Yeah, absolutely. Some independents are more independent than others. Some are literally, I work for the VCs, and some are, I'm successful in my own right. I like those people. I'm glad they referred me in, but I'm going to call it the way I see it. And and some people are, there's one other case we didn't talk about, which is, oh, I sit on another board. So, so I'm CEO of one of their companies. They plug me into a board of their other companies and they invited me to be an LP in three funds, mm. right? That, that tangled web, it gets more tangled with every additional engagement. So I actually think it's a fair question to ask an independent. Do you sit on any other boards with them? Are you running any of their companies? Are you an LP and to what extent is it a meaningful part of your worth? I'm just trying to figure out how ensnared you are on the web. And I might take you anyway, but it's because to me, there's no wrong answer to this question. You just need to be not surprised. And, and this is, I'm going to go back to the electromagnetic field because I think the most dangerous case is the person who talks a big game about independence. They were referred in by the VC. They are an LP in five of their funds. They just didn't tell you that and you didn't ask. And they, they talk a big game about their independence up until when it matters. And when it matters, the VC pushes the electromagnetic field, activates it, and they go, bing. <laughs> yep. they fall perfectly in line. And when does it matter? M&A offer. When does it matter? You know, IPO. So the independents who appear independent until it matters are, in my mind, the most dangerous because there's no right or wrong answer. You just don't want to find yourself surprised. This is the exciting stuff to me. So I, I got to ask you, what's your opinion on, let's say there's a CEO and there's a secondary that happens. Now he or she has some cash. Their investor who's on the board has a fund and they ask the CEO to be an LP in the fund as kind of a nice thing to do. Do you think that's a conflict of interest? So I want to make sure I understand the scenario. I'm a founder CEO. I'm selling shares of the secondary. So I have a bunch of cash. 
And uh, the fund says, hey, we're raising money right now. Would you like to be an LP in our next fund? Yeah. Should you as a CEO or a CFO or an active executive be an LP in a small capacity, but in one of your investors' funds? Have you ever seen that? I I think it's fine. I I think I've done it. Look, let's just put it this way. If it's a top tier VC, you will have no other opportunity in your life to get into that fund. Let's be clear. Yeah, (laughs) I know, because I I think I would do it. (laughs) Yeah, you would do it. And by the way, these are often called sidecar funds because it's not the actual fund, because the actual fund might have a million dollar or $10 million minimum investment, but they'll run sidecar funds with either the word partners in them or friends of or an A on the letter name. So it's something partners fund 6A, and the A means it's a sidecar fund. So sidecar funds are a normal part of Silicon Valley. You can argue it's a web of corruption, or you can argue my view, which is it's all part of the Silicon Valley hub effect. And what makes Silicon Valley great is when you are a successful CEO, you do advise portfolio companies, right? You give back to the system. I was a part of Business Objects in France, which is one of the greatest French software companies. And everyone who made money left because of the tax system. Nobody gave back to the system. Nobody stayed, became a French VC. Nobody sat on French boards, nothing. So, so all the talent that from Business Objects kind of dissipated. Some of it went to London, right? So, so some European countries benefited, but France didn't because it all left. And it made me a big believer that the magic of Silicon Valley is at the end of somebody's career, they do go sit on boards, they do become angels, they do become yeah. advisors, they invest in LP funds. So everybody's just webbed into everybody. And, and, and yeah, there's probably some downside to that too. But, but I think the negative view is, you know, that's all corrupt and everything else. The positive view is that investment is probably not going to change your CEO's life, right? And, and it's just him or her in the web and then when a CEO of one of those companies of the funds calls, they'll be that much more likely to help advise them, right? So, so there's a lot of positive effects that come from this web. And personally, I wouldn't see it as a conflict. Yeah, when I'm sitting around having beers with my friends who are also operators, because we're not investors, sometimes we'll play a game and say, if you could pick one fund to be an LP in, who would it be? And say it's Sequoia, you have to admit that this is definitely not the number one reason why you would take money from someone, but it is appealing that you know, Sequoia is probably not going to pick up the phone and call CJ Gustafson to be an LP. But maybe if I'm a CFO or CEO of one of their portfolio companies, that increases the probability that I can one day invest. Yes. I think if you're a CEO of a top tier fund and if they run sidecars, which not everybody does, your odds definitely go up. I've been invited to sidecars where I'm not technically, like I referred a deal to one fund and in their next fund, they said, Hey, do you want to be an investor? And I said, yes. But I didn't, there was no quid pro quo. I just referred him because like, yeah. oh, my buddy, so-and-so, I think he could be a great person for you to talk to. And they made the intro, they made the investment, they made a lot of money in the investment. And so, yeah, there is this, you, you call it quid pro quo stuff. But look, let me tell you the better reason to take the top tier firm's money is they're going to plug you as CFO into, like, if they love you when this deal ends, they're going to help plug you into a super quality company. Right. And if you've picked a lower tier VC, they, they don't have that to offer you, right? Or, or the, the pathological case, if you pick a retiring partner at a top tier firm, they're not going to still be working to help refer you, right? So, so the perfect person is kind of a rising partner at a top tier firm because you can ride along with them and they can plug you in two or three times throughout your career. That's an amazing nugget of wisdom because if you think about it, you're on the come up just like that partner is and they need people to succeed. It's kind of like a director trying to find people to cast in a movie. You know, a director, Martin Scorsese ends up working with Leonardo DiCaprio for 20 years because they need each other. Yeah, exactly right. That's an excellent analogy. And uh, that's the way it works. And that's what I'd be looking for. It's not really about the sidecar fund. That's icing on the cake. It's much more about For example, if you're looking between two jobs right now as a CFO Mm -hmm. and one is a top tier firm backed by and the other one's a lower tier firm, and then you have two top tier firms and one's got kind of a rising partner who's in your cohort and one's got a retiring partner who's a sage, I would still go for this one. I would go for the one where it's a rising partner at a top tier firm because then you can build your careers together. I love the game theory in that. Switching gears a bit, you have this idea of the board and some people will, will throw around the word boss. Is the board the CFO's boss? Is the board the CEO's boss? Is the board anyone's a boss? The answer is no. They're, they're nobody's boss. They, they do oversee the CEO, but but they're not a boss in the conventional sense of the word. I, I did a blog post on this called the, the Board Boss Delusion, I think it was called. 
And for founders, this is rarely a problem. Founders instinctively understand the relationship because it's their company. (laughs) This is my company. You're my board. It's a CEO board relationship. They get it. The people who have trouble with this are the people like me who climbed the corporate ladder, were C-level position, and then become a CEO. Because by default, you tend to want to treat the board like a boss. You spent 20 years building your career by knowing how to work with a boss. And all of a sudden, you're working with a board. And this is something I help that, that group of CEOs with because nobody teaches you how to do it. And a lot of your prior training is irrelevant. But short answer, no, the, the board is not your boss as CEO. And the board is definitely not your boss as CFO. One of the things that drives me crazy, particularly with CFO candidates, but sometimes others say this, is the board brought me in. And I'm like, well, I'm funny. Did, did that company have a CEO at the time? And I think CFOs think it sounds good. Well, you know, I was, I was CFO of this company and this other company was messing up. So the board brought me in. And I don't like it. Uh, it just is a big turnoff to me because there had to be a CEO. They, you, did they hire you? As, I'd be like, oh, they hired you as CEO then. <laughs> and they're yeah, like, no, yeah. no. And I'm like, well, the, then they didn't bring you in. And it's kind of disrespectful for your boss for you to say that. I mean, you, you might say I had a lot of board support or a board member introduced me or the board connected me to this opportunity where I joined. That's all fine. But but I've met many people, and it's even worse when it's a CRO because at least with a CFO – I could see it, right? They're going to fire the CEO. He or she doesn't know it. They're going to bring a CFO to hold the fort during the transition. Okay, literally speaking, it might be true. The board brought you in. Still sounds terrible. But that's never true for a CRO. It's certainly never, ever, ever true for a CMO. I'm so glad you called that out because I've heard that exact same line from CFOs and from CROs. And I think sometimes CFOs think it's cool to say because they've worked for multiple portfolio companies. But what you have to understand is you're working for the CEO now, even if, you know, maybe they helped recruit you, you're an operator within a firm in a hierarchy. Yeah. CEO runs a company full stop. Right. And, uh, if you don't believe that, don't, don't be a part of the the whole system. (laughs) The CEO's job is to run the company, not the board. Look, the CFO has a privileged relationship with the board, a special relationship with the board. If there's one C-level exec who might routinely talk to the board without the CEO in attendance, it would be the CFO. So mm. I'm not disputing there is kind of a special relationship. Mm. And I think statutorily, use Starbucks, there might even be certain cases where the CFO is supposed to report directly to the board. I don't know if it's audit committee or something. But, but the reality is you're in an organization. The organization is run by the CEO. Yes, you have a privileged relationship with the board. Yes, there might be certain conditions are with you are expected to you know, dial things directly into the board. But the board didn't bring you in. The CEO brought you in. Yeah, so true. Gearing towards a, a close here, I did want to touch on one other category briefly, and that's actually running the meeting. So we've talked about the, the preparation. We've talked about the dynamics. I'm about to present an operating plan for fiscal year 2024 coming up here. You've been a CEO of two startups and on the board of about 10, which means you've sat through a ton of operating plan presentations as a presenter and getting presented too. What are some of the missteps that people make when presenting an operating plan? I think the biggest thing that goes wrong is they present a budget, not a plan. And one of the fun things you can do is is to get 10 finance people in a room and ask them what's the difference between a plan, a budget, and a model. And, and you could have a very long conversation about that. <laughs> yeah. um, my definition is a budget is kind of a set of numbers. It's aligned to the general ledger. It's what managers are held accountable to in monthly reporting. But, but a budget by itself, to me, the budget is in some ways a scarf on the outfit. It's an accessory, right? It's not the outfit. <laughs> it's an That's accessory. That's a soundbite. It's a scarf. The budget's a scarf, producer Nancy. Clip that. <laughs> yeah, and people get confused. They, they think it's the whole outfit. And it's like, no, no, it's a scarf. Like, like the plan is the outfit. And the plan should be driven by a strategy. And there's a great book called The Crux on that, if you want the kind of latest, greatest strategy book. But there's a strategy behind the plan. There's OKRs, right? Like, here's our overall strategy. Here's our plan to win, right? Then here are the major objectives we have for the company this year to go do that. Here's the org chart we're putting in place to deploy resources against those OKRs and that strategy to win. Oh, and by the way, here's a matching financial plan, right? A, a matching blue scarf to go with the uh, you know the blue outfit, right? That's the way you got to think of it. I know it's a lot of work to make the scarf. I, I obviously, I ran a company to help people do that work. I don't want to minimize it. But I think the mistakes, it's not what you asked, is, is that people, they forget that ratio. And if you're going to present like a trended set of numbers that finance built with no buy-in, no iteration with the team, no linkage to strategy, no linkage to org. It's just a homework problem, right? Oh, you did a homework problem to say what would be a good default budget for this company for next year, but it's not a plan. Right. 
maybe you haven't seen my scarves though. They're pretty beautiful, Dave. <laughs> I'm sure they're very, very nicely made scarves. Any any other tips for presenting an operating plan? I do have one that's very important is the the three-year trajectory. I mean, first yeah. do it on time, obviously, which means you need to start on time. There, there's almost no way to make up, you know, if you start on November 20th, if you're starting your plan on Thanksgiving, it's going to be really hard to get it done by the end of the year. So start on time so you can get it, you know, approved in late December or latest early January. But the biggest thing is make sure you include a long-term model because I think the most irritating budget hack I see is when you build a one-year budget and you don't present the three-year model that's part of. And therefore, cash flow looks good, rule of 40 looks good, operating margin looks good because you basically stop all investment in July. (laughs) And you get enough resources to deliver that year, but nothing to tee up the following year. And then you come shock in September, October and say, oh, my God, we need to hire outside a plan because we have no chance of growing next year if we don't. Right. Surprise. And this is all kind of gamesmanship slash BS with the board. So as a board member, the first thing I look for is showing the three year model. This is part of for two reasons. One, I want to understand if we agree on the longer term trajectory. And two, then I get to say. The investments in 2H in this budget do correspond to the performance in 1H of next year on that model. And if you say, oh, no, we never dovetailed it, then there's a big problem. You got to gas up the school bus if you want to go on the field trip. True. But, and, but the, 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 I'm not going to do better on the metaphor, but, but we <laughs> both know that if you, if you don't put gas in, the, I don't know, the, the bus looks a lot more efficient on this year's trip. <laughs> you won't yeah. be able to go on next year's trip, but this year looks great. A casino worker said that quote to me once when I lost my only $100 in college on the craps table on the first roll. He said, you got to gas <laughs> up the bus if you want to go on the field trip. Stuck with me. Awesome. Last one I got for you here, Dave, and you wrote an excellent post on it. So any tips for leading what you call a strategic board discussion and drawing the right people in? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes CEOs think they want to have a discussion with the board and they put 30 minutes in the agenda for it. And right there, there's a problem because like, wait, there's six board members, for example, 30 minutes. So there's five minutes, maximum five minutes average participation per board member, right? So just first do the math. Um, Second, they usually say, well, I want to have this discussion, but I need to tee it up first. And that makes sense. Like we do want people baselined. We want people having the same context. So I have no problem with the brief tee up. But if that tee up is 37 slides and takes, you know, 28 of the 30 allotted minutes, then you don't really want a discussion uh, or you're just really bad at getting what you want. So allocate enough time, have a tee up, but keep it as short as humanly possible. Right. And then do the math on is there enough time for people to talk? And then finally, if you're going to have slides, make each slide blank with a question on top. That's my hack. Because if you want to have a discussion, there shouldn't be slides and slides and slides and slides, right? Do the tee up. Hey, baseline, mm. here are the three competitors. Here's the good at Here's the bad at. Now, you know, alternatives, here's what we're looking at. Options one, two, three. Now, questions. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you believe this? And just blank slides. If you want to tee up a discussion, tee up a discussion. I love it. Dave, this has been a master class on how to prepare and execute on a board meeting. I got to thank you. Uh, I got to thank you personally for helping me out on, on my Q4 plan. Awesome. Well, good. Well, glad to be of assistance. And uh, thanks so much for inviting me, CJ. Dave, real quick, where can people find you? www.kelblog.com or Twitter. I refuse to call it X, Twitter slash Kelblog. Those are the two best ways. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.